Well, today we're talking about the man in the mirror, and we're going to talk about the religion of self as we continue this series called Jesus Hates Religion. And the problem with self starts with the man in the mirror, and the mirror of self, the religion of self, rather than trusting in a relationship with God, we trust in this thing that we see in the mirror. And what religion does is it loses sight of the destination, and it begins to focus on the deeds. And religion is not about uh, God, religion is all about being good. And, and religious people, consequently, what they do is they congregate into cliques and different groups and, and congregations that live by uh, different sets of rules. And based on your set of rules, they gather together. And whether you're a legalist on one end of the spectrum and you want everybody to obey every single rule and every single subset of every rule and subset of the subsets, or you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're a liberal and you think anyone can do what Whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, either way, you, you pick. Either group you pick. It's all about doing it on my own. And here's the outcome of all of this religious groupings uh, together, is people on the inside and people on the outside are bound by cynicism, and they're bound by guilt, and they're turned away from piety, and they're turned away from hatred, which is so far away from what Jesus Christ died to provide for us, what Jesus Christ came to accomplish and I started this series last week with a common context and a common understanding and a clear definition of what religion is. Because when I say the word religion, that's when the ground gets shaken, people get nervous. And uh, across our campuses today, there are thousands of different mental experiences and mental pictures about what religion really is. And for those of you sitting in the seats across our campuses, all of you come to us today and you come in today here with your own definition and your own own understanding and your own perception of what religion is. And so let me tell you, first of all, what I don't mean when I say Jesus hates religion and what I'm not referring to. I don't mean the church. Jesus doesn't hate the church. It's the bride of Christ, and it is the body of Christ in the world. It's the plan of God to carry the good news to the world. I don't mean doctrine. Doctrine is just a set of common beliefs, and I don't think he hates those. I certainly don't mean denominations. I think denominations have their place in this world, certainly have had their place. I don't mean religious leaders, right? I'm not talking about a bunch of preachers or a, a priest or a pope. God doesn't hate those people. He, he loves those people. But let me give you the definition that we're using throughout this series. When I declare to you Jesus hates religion, when I say religion, what I'm talking about are man-made paths to God. Man-made paths to God, paths that you build and paths that I build. And some of those paths are just lists of do's, and some of those paths are lists of don'ts that get us gold stars from God, get us some kind of check mark from God, this little smiley face on our paper from God. And some of those paths are rituals or rites that are empty without the Spirit of God. And some of those paths are philosophies that are disguised as belief and a form of righteousness with no real power behind it. And I want you to hear me today when I say God hates all of those paths because all of those paths in their simplest terms are arrogance, that I can do this by myself, God, that I can get to you all by myself, God. I can right this wrong, God. I can find the power within my own self. I, 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 me, 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 me. And religion is saying that I can get to God through a path that I built. But Christianity is not 
religion. It is not us trying to find a way to get up to God. It is God coming down to us in the person of Jesus. And what did Jesus say? In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man gets to the Father except through me. Christianity is not a religion. By our definition, and and Christianity and the Christian faith is not built or founded on a set of religious principles. It is founded on an event. What event? We talked about it last week. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, And religion was buried in that tomb, but a relationship rolled out that morning. And religion is man's attempt to somehow get up to God and find a way to God, but God knew that's not gonna work. And if we're honest, we would say, we know it can't be done either. And we're not trying to find our way up to God. God found his way down to us, and God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died on that cross for all of us, for you and for me. But not just for you and for me. He died on that cross for our sins. But three days later, he came back from the dead, and Jesus rose again to life. And the way that this plays out is that he rose out of that grave to make a way for all of us to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And we couldn't just follow him to death, but we do follow him in resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Listen to this verse of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. It tells us this truth that resurrection is the foundation. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of the great harvest of all who have died. And the resurrection brings life, but religion can only bring death. And Jesus is about life, but religion is about dead ends. Listen, let me ask you this question. I don't know if you've ever felt this way or not, but I, I know that I certainly have, and, and we've kind of taken a poll across all the campuses, the previous services. How many of you feel like you've ever hit a dead end in life? Okay, I mean metaphorically. Some of you have hit dead ends where, you know, you came to the dead end of a road physically. I've heard stories of people driving in lakes and you really went into a dead end. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you, you feel like you hit a dead end in your job. Right, that's a common phrase that we all use, dead-end job. I'm in a dead-end job. 85% of Americans hate their job, and so they they feel like they're in a dead-end job. It's going nowhere. Maybe you're in a dead-end pay scale. In other words, you're not gonna get blessed anymore. It doesn't matter how much harder you work. Uh, There may be a dead-end as it relates to weight loss or or exercise, and you feel like I I was making progress, and now I feel like I'm at this dead-end. And maybe you feel like you're in a dead-end as it relates to your pursuit of God. God, in your pursuit of God, and and maybe somebody directed you there, or or maybe you directed yourself there, and you found yourself there all by yourself, but I want to show you today the journey that we're going on, and and I want to show you where we're going to end up in this journey, because in order to get from religion to a relationship, we have to hit dead ends. And on this journey from death to life, and not just from death to life, but from death to life to life abundant, we have to come to the end of ourself and hit a couple of dead ends. And the first one is this. I want you to write it down. We have to hit the dead end of self-trust. The American culture that you live in and I live in, it demands that we be successful. Right, And there is no exception to that rule, that you either are a success or you're not. And so you got to come to the end of this journey. And what you do is you take all that you put in and you divide it out on the bottom line to see if you made it and to see if you were a success. And this doesn't just take place in our jobs, in our careers, or in our portfolios. This begins when we're small children and our parents are applauding us on a ball field. 
right? In fact, it goes back further than that. It goes back to when we took our very first step and our parents and grandparents gathered around and applauded. Yeah, you did it, right? You can do it. Look what you've done. And we're like, I don't know what I did, but, but they're applauding. And it's no wonder in the American culture, we are conditioned to live with a deep, deep need to seek everybody else's approval. And we can only feel accepted in life when we've accomplished something. And we only feel approval if we have achieved some goal on our own. And that's the key, on our own, that no one helped us with. It's all about trusting in ourselves and not trusting in anyone else or anything else. And when it comes to entering a relationship with God, we have a hard time believing in the American church that God wants nothing from us. Because in our culture, we value self-sufficiency. We don't just value self-sufficiency. We honor it. And I want you to hear me today when I tell you that God doesn't honor it. And he wants us to see what we can't accomplish and accept it as a gift. To accept it as a gift. In fact, I tell you that's the whole point of the law. When I say the law, I mean the Old Testament and all the do's and don'ts in Scripture, the Old Covenant, all of that. Paul tells us the whole point of all of that was to be a tutor to tell us and to show us that we can't do it on our own. And it points to the one who died, who did do it for us, and we accept him. And I talk to people on a regular basis about Jesus. I meet people in restaurants or on airplanes or wherever traveling, and and one of the questions that I was taught decades ago to ask people to kind of determine or assess their spiritual uh, journey is to say, well, let's just say you do die, and you're standing before God, and God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What, What are you telling and there's one category of answers that that, that category it, it comes in more than every other category combined. And, and you know that category. The category is I'm a good guy. Or, or I'm a good girl, right? That that I, I I've done more good than I've done bad. And and I would say that's great, right? And that's fine because not everybody I've met can say I've, I've done good. But, but you can. You say, I've done good. And let me just say, if you want to take that journey to God, that path of good works and that path of good deeds, fine. Let me help you w- with that journey, okay? Because here's the standard. The standard is holiness. And if you're not churchy and you don't know what holiness means, it means being like Jesus in every area of your life. So let's just play a little game this morning. Let's see how we're all doing. Okay, and so on every campus, here's what I want you to do. Everybody stand to your feet. Okay, across all the campuses, DuPage, Midtown, Downtown, and and here at Battle Creek, stand up on your feet. And here's how the game is played. Okay, I'm going to read to you, I don't know, five scriptures. And on these five scriptures, if it is a scripture that you live and you have figured out and you've accomplished, then stay standing. If it's a scripture that you fail miserably in, then I want you to sit down. Okay, everybody understand that? So on every campus, here's what we're going to find out. We're going to find out who the holy people are so we can hire some staff, right, at, at, at every campus. Now, everybody get the rules, okay? Here, here's the first scripture, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Okay, some of you are still standing, which is great, right? I can't see what's happening on the other campuses this morning, but some of you are, all right? So here we go, Ephesians 5.20. Give thanks in everything. I just saw one wife jerk her husband down. Okay, we give thanks in everything, all right? So we have a few. Philippians 4, verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Okay, we have a couple. 
I'm not sure they speak English, but we do have it. Philippians 4 4. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Philippians 4 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Always rejoice in the Lord. All right? I don't know how we're doing it downtown. I'm sure there's a bunch standing at midtown. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The scriptures say, You must be holy because I am holy. All right? So go ahead and applaud those who are still standing. You can have a seat. And. Uh, but that's only five, okay? That, that's only five, and 95% of us went down on the very first one, right? And there's plenty more where those five came from. There are thousands of verses, thousands of scriptures that we could go to, and I want to tell you a word that typifies what it means to come to the end of self, and I want you to write this word down. It's the word brokenness. And when you write brokenness down, here's what I want you to understand. God will bring all of us there. He'll bring all of us there. And here's what brokenness is. Brokenness is coming to the end of our own confidence and our own ability to manage life. That's what it is. And God's going to take every single one of us to that place. Uh, years ago, I, for, for many years in youth ministry and, and even as a pastor, I would travel every summer for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I would go do these youth camps all over the country, and, and uh, sometimes for 100 kids, sometimes for thousands and thousands of kids, and, and everywhere in between. And so, and so I would go preach to high school students, junior high students, college students in camp environments around the country in the summer. And some summers I would go 12 weeks in a row and go do these camps. And so I've weaned out of that. The last few years, my kids are at the age where it matters if I'm home or not. And they know if I'm home or not. When they were little, I just went before they knew. But now they know. And so I, I kind of quit doing that by and large, almost all together. And maybe one day we'll pick it up. But I have a real special place in my heart for those events and for those youth camps and for kids and what God does at those camps. But one of the places that I've been probably a half a dozen times is Tennessee, outside of a city called Cleveland, Tennessee. There is a camp resort called Horns Creek. And at Horns Creek, uh, it, it's amazing campground and, and uh, facility and, and can hold thousands of kids. And they come in. And, and one of the activities they do at Horns Creek during the day for the free time, rec time for some of the kids, is they go whitewater rafting. How many of you have been rafting before? Just let me see your hand. Every campus, just raise your hand, okay? Several of you. I'm not talking about like you lay on a raft in a pool. I'm talking about the water was moving. And it was white capping, okay? And so several of us have done this event. We paid to go do this and to put our lives in danger. And the way this, this rafting thing plays out is that you go in and, and these, all these kids get off these buses and they make you wear a helmet, which I hate. I hate, okay? Those of you who don't have curly hair, you don't understand. You end up with a ring in this curly hair afterwards. But it's also, I'm a little germaphobic in regard to that. I don't like putting helmets that other people had on on. Bowling is awful, right? Put these shoes on and stick your fingers in those holes, right? Oh, I hate it. But, but in that process, that, that you put this helmet on and then you put this life jacket on like, like it was designed in 1920. It's that orange thing that goes around your neck that's puffy. It's not even a modern-day life jacket that was invented in 75. This is that thing that goes around your neck that makes us all look nine months pregnant, right? And, and, and I want one that's going to stay around my waist. I don't want one that's going to come up to the surface of the water and choke me. But that's what these things do. And so you're sitting there in your bathing suit with this life jacket on and this helmet on, and then they give you a paddle, an oar, and you sit down in the boat on the land, which is so awkward. And they, you say they paddle like, and you're paddling, you know, in the grass. 
and, 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 you know, and on the dirt, and they're giving you all these lessons. And the guide typically is international, right? Doesn't speak our language very well. And you're not sure that you understand everything that he said, but you're thinking, I think I should. Because he's emphasizing how dangerous this is. And, and, and so he tells you, rule number one, do not fall out of the boat. But you're going, oh, let me write that one down, right? <laughs> Hadn't thought of that one. And, and, and then he says, if you fall out of the boat, here's what I want you to do. I want you not to, to turn your back and go down the river backwards. I want you to face where you're going. Why? So that your feet can kick you out of a strainer. If you come into a strainer, what's a strainer? A strainer is where trees have fallen or beavers have built a home or whatever. And it's, it's limbs that, that act like a colander in the flow of this high-moving water high, at a high speed. And so you can get sucked into one of these strainers and plugged up against it with the stream holding you in it forever which is not a good thing, right? The second rule is, is when you fall in the water, you pull your knees to your chest. You do not stand up. Why? Because the current is moving so swift. Beyond that, in the bottom of the river, there are rocks and crevices. Your foot can get in one of those rocks and the current can break it. Or you get pinned in there and the current's so strong, it will take your pinned foot and then move you under the water where you will stay forever. And, and he's given this lecture, there's a whole lot of forevers in this thing. And I'm thinking, we paid to do this like for an hour, not forever. And, and he's, so he's scaring you. And then he gives you the classifications of the water. Number one, class rapid means the water's moving. Number two means it's white capping. A class three rapid means high danger. A class four rapid means you will die. <laughs> class five means you're already good as dead right? And, and so those kind of four and five rafts, uh, rapids are in the upper Akoi, which is, by the way, where they did the Olympics in 96 when the Olympics were in Atlanta. And so all the rafting Olympic events were held on the upper Akoi. But they don't let people like you and me get on the upper Akoi. We get in the lower Akoi where there's one, twos, and threes and one class four. And the one class four, by the way, they give all the rapids titles and names. And he goes on and he tells you class Four rapid, the one that we're all going to hit is called Hell's Hole. As if they're demons swimming around this pool of water, right? And, and it's called Hell's Hole. And when he said it, it was as if his voice dropped six octaves and he said, And you don't want to fall out of the boat in Hell's Hole. And my ADD mind, I wasn't even paying attention at this point anymore, but when he said Hell's Hole, I mean, everybody looks. To pay attention to this guy. What are you talking about? And he said, it's a class four. Don't fall out of the boat in hell's hole. If you fall out of the boat in hell's hole, you will die. And he goes on to this whole journey and explains. And then he says, you will die, period. The next sentence is, but if you fall out of the boat, don't panic. <laughs> I'm like, he's not really getting English at this point. Because what he just said makes no sense. You will die. Don't panic. In other words, lean into that death. Just embrace it, right? And he said, you will go under the water, and when you go under the water, you will be under the water at minimum one and a half minutes, more likely closer to five. But don't panic, because eventually the life jacket will do its job. It will pop you up to the surface of the water, and when it does, you might be alive if you don't panic. 
And then he says, let's go, right? And you get in the boat and you go down the river. And we, while we're going down the river, we come to hell's hole. He warns us, every kid is freaking out. They've got that strap tied around their waist, you know, like a rodeo artist. And, and they're pushing their friends to the edge of the boat. So they're in the middle of the boat because nobody wants to fall out of the boat. And we go through hell's hole and the boat turns up straight up like this and then falls like this into this hole. Our guide at hell's hole jumped out of the boat onto this huge car-sized boulder in the middle of the water. He jumps up on it, runs across the boulder, and as we come out the other side of Hell's Hole, he jumps back in the boat. He avoided Hell's Hole altogether. So we made it, we got through it, we get all the way to the end, and because I'm with the youth pastor, I am the camp pastor, we go with the video crew, and we go with this video crew, and we make our way in a car up the side of the, the road, which parallels the river. We stop on the side of this picnic area, and we get out, and there's these two guys that they call lifeguards, which is not fair because it's more like Baywatch meets Dukes of Hazard. And, and, and these two guys in their cut-off Daisy Duke jeans with their abs have these orange buoys, you know, strapped to their chest. And, and they're sitting there, one on either side of the river, and there's this cable, this steel cable that goes across the river. And, and they're sitting there uh, watching people come by Hell's Hole. And we're, so we're going to shoot video. Which, what, where better to shoot video than Hell's Hole, Right which is just great devotional footage because you say, that's hell's hole. If you fall in, you die. You want to know Jesus. And, and, and so in the whole process, this is the way this is going on. And so we're videoing all this. And this guy is sitting there watching these kids at hell's hole eating a deviled ham sandwich. You can't make this stuff up. And so we're watching these kids come by, and, and this kid, about 15, 16 years old, this boy falls out of the raft and goes, ah, under the water. A minute and a half later, 500 yards down the river, he pops back up. <laughs> the lifeguards did not move. They didn't move a muscle. They sat there eating their sandwich, didn't even consider jumping in. And we're watching it going, this is the easiest job on the place. It's like working for the government. You just take the check and do nothing, right? And, and, and so that's the way this is playing out. And they go under, and a few minutes later, a little girl, ah! Two and a half minutes later, she pops up out of the water. Ah! Didn't move it. Well, eventually, here comes this lady in her 50s or 60s. She falls out of the boat and it goes like this. Help! And when she goes under the water, what these guys did as they sprung into action was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. That he took that buoy thing off and slid it across that cable to the other guy who catches it in midair as he's sliding down this zip line into the water. He takes that buoy and he grabs that girl, that lady, by the life jacket and pulls her out of that water up onto this sandbar. And the whole thing happened like a rodeo champion in eight seconds. It was the coolest thing I'd ever watched. And I turned and looked at the video guy who's got the camera down here like this, like this. I said, did you get it? He said, I didn't get it. I'm like, oh, you got to do it again. We have to video this, right? And he says, oh, it'll happen again. And a few minutes later, kids, you know, and the whole thing. And then another person falls in. Help me up. And they did it again. They got it. We got it on video. I wish you could see the video. Actually, your God-given imagination is better. That's the reason I never show the video. And, and, and so he, he got these people. So basically, I asked at the end of the afternoon, I said, you got to explain to me how this works. Because some people you save, some people you don't save. And he said, it's very simple. I said, what is it? He said, when people are writing this, we think they've paid money to write it. And we think they're all having a great time that they paid. And so when we hear, ah, we just assume they're enjoying it. He said, you don't take somebody off of a roller coaster that says, ah, 
You just let them ride it because they're enjoying the process. But there are two words that when we hear these two words, we spring into an action. And, and here are the words, help me or any portion of them. And by the way, as he told me that, I thought, oh, what amazing spiritual truth that God Almighty is watching his children. And when we say those two words, help me, the God who spoke this universe into existence springs to action to help his children. He loves to show up in our lives and he loves to show off in our lives. And when we cry, help me, he comes running to our rescue. And you want to know how to go from self-trust to brokenness to trusting God? It is by hearing and understanding what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Listen, now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. Who's doing the work? God. Say God. God's doing the work. And may the God of peace keep you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and your whole soul and your whole body be kept blameless until the day our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Verse 24. God who calls you is faithful. Listen to the last four words. He will do this. Who's making us holy? God is making us holy. And I want you to hear me today when I tell you God won't be anybody's co-pilot. He's not going to ride in the passenger seat and let you direct this journey. Listen, he not only wants to be the co-pilot, he wants to be the pilot, the co-pilot, the seats, the plane, the wing, the jet stream, the air draft, the landing gear. He wants to be everything. He is God. Acts 17 verse 28 tells us this. In him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. That's pretty much all of life. And we are to do it in him. And that's all good. And that's how all of us come to God. We come empty-handed. And we come naked with nothing to offer. And we enter into this intimate relationship with him. But somehow along the way, we start to think, we did this. Which is the second dead end that we all have to hit. And, and that is the dead end of self-effort. And there is a difference between so that and because. Some of you have so that parents and some of you have because parents. So that parents are, you will do this and this and this and this, and you will act this way, this way, this way, so that I, I, I will reward you, and so that I will care for you, and so that I will love you. And some of you have because parents, which who were, I love you, you're my child, I know you mess up, but I love you, there's nothing you can do to cause me to love you any less, and, and because I love you, I want you to act this way, this way, this way. Listen, the so that is somehow thinking that we can crack this code on God. And that we're going to crack this code and God is going to accept us and God is going to love us. And we're going to do all of these things so that. Listen, if I didn't do anything to get my salvation, what do I need to do to keep it? Nothing. And there's a difference between doing things to gain salvation and doing things because we are saved. It's so that versus because. Listen, I, I, I want to live for God because he saved me. Because he deposited all righteousness and, and Christ-likeness in me and in my spirit, that, that I do it because, not so that. It's a done thing as a child of God. Then here's what I want you to hear. Listen, listen, listen. You can obey and not love. You can. You can obey and not love, but you cannot love and not obey. 
Do you hear the difference between these two things? And it's not that we obey God to gain anything. We already have it. He already dumped the dump truck of all Christ-likeness on us and in us. And if we believe in Jesus and we accept him, we are saved. But once we are saved, we obey him because we love him, because he loves us, because of what he's done in us. And we've said already a couple of times today that the American culture demands that you and I be successful, which is measured by what? It's measured by what we accomplish and what we are able to get done. And we are conditioned to seek approval and acceptance by what we do. And we have the notion to take that into our relationship with God. And we think that same thing applies to God. And many, or even quite honestly, most believers are struggling to make their lives count only to find out that it's not working out like they thought it would or like they thought it should. And they're sincere in their commitment. And they're giving it their best. And they're giving it their best effort. And yet they're frustrated because they can't live up to the standard that they think they ought to. And what I'm saying to you today is that you and I need to get to the place where we understand that our efforts aren't enough. Never will be. That we didn't do anything to attain salvation, so we can't do anything to keep salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, I've, I've quoted this to you many, many times. I've taught my children this verse, right? That you were saved by grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this. Why? It is God's gift. Verse 9 says, salvation is not a reward for all the good things you've done. Why? So that no man can boast about it, right? So that no man can boast about it. We should not boast about it. Yet we all know people who do boast about it, right? We, we know people. We, all of us know someone. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. They trust Jesus Christ in grace. They start to live this good life. They get pretty good at being a follower. They get pretty good at obeying. They get pretty good at being disciplined. And then they get the big head. And they, all of a sudden they think they've done it. And what I want to say to you is at that point in the journey, you are relying on your own self-effort instead of the power of God in your life. And to think that your salvation has anything to do with your own ability to be good, to do good, to be righteous, to do righteous, if you think that, then you have made an end of God's power instead of an end of religion and an end of self. And the desire to be successful is so strong, and it makes its way into our spiritual life when we're not careful and trusting in God, and we think we get ahead by hard work, that's true in the business world. It is true in the business world, but that's not true in the spiritual world. It's completely different in the business world. In the business world, it's about performance, and you're producing the desired results, but Christianity is not built around a performance. Christianity is built around a person, and his name is Jesus Christ, and many Christians have wondered, is this all there is? Is this what really what Jesus died to provide me? Am I living the life that Jesus died to give me? And they struggle to get this grasp on what it means to succeed spiritually. And they have resigned themselves to the numbness. And they quit. But I would say to you, I think they missed the point altogether. You, you see, God likes to create situations to frustrate his followers. And it's how he ends the confidence we have in our own ability. Our own ability to do what? Our own ability to somehow navigate our path into the land of grace and into the land of freedom. But grace, listen, it cannot be earned. And I want you to write this one down. Listen, God doesn't just allow us to face impossible situations. God doesn't just allow us to face impossible situations. He often designs them to bring us to the end of self-sufficiency. And no matter 
how hard or how long we try, we can never on our own live the victorious Christian life. Hear me. It is not hard to live a victorious Christian life. It is impossible for you and me to do that on our own. And that is the underlying foundation. Listen, the underlying foundation of all religion is performance. And God's not impressed with our performance. What is God impressed with? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us God is impressed with faith, that faith is required to please God. And the essence of religion is man's attempt to somehow convince himself that he's jumped through enough hoops for God to somehow give him the approving nod and, and a check mark. And we try to validate our own self-effort and our own self-doing and all of this doing. But I want you to write this down. Listen, our acts of self-righteousness actually separate us from the very goal we're seeking to achieve. They don't help us get there. They actually separate us. What am I trying to say? Here's what I'm trying to say. Religion is poison. Why? Because it kills the opportunity that anyone will ever have to have genuine intimacy with God. And what religion is, it's what rushes in to a life and a vacuum created by the absence of intimacy with God. And when the absence of intimacy with God is there, it creates a vacuum that religion rushes to fill in our lives. And you've heard this said before, that God won't put more on you than you can bear. I gotta say to you, that's a lie. Quite honestly, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It is the twisting of Scripture. You say, what, what about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? I know that verse, right? I could call Eli up here right now, and Eli could quote that verse. And, and here's what that verse says. The temptation in your life, right, is no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted more than you can stand. And when you are tempted, God will show you the way out so that you can endure up underneath it, right? And you say, well, what about that? That's Scripture. He won't allow it to be more than we can bear. He's talking about temptation. He's not talking about every situation in life. He's saying he will rescue you from temptation. And the door is going to get smaller, right? He's going to show you a way out. And when he first shows you the way out, it may be a barn door. And the longer you proceed in it, it may be a mouse hole. But he's going to show you a way out so that you can get out of it. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 8. We don't want you to be in the dark, friends, about how hard it was when all this came down on us in Asia. It was so bad. Everybody on every campus say bad. That's another Michael Jackson song. Bad. We, we didn't think we were going to make it. We felt like we'd been sent to death row. You, you think he's talking about a tough scenario? He said, we, we feel like we've been sent to death row. That it was all over for us. As it turned out, it was the best thing that could have ever happened. Instead of trusting in our own strength or our own wits to get us out of it, we were forced to trust in God totally. Not a bad idea since the God who he's the God who raises the dead. And he did it. He rescued us from certain doom and he will do it again, rescuing us as many times as we need rescuing. Listen, Paul faced troubles and he faced burdens in his life, but for a reason. God was helping him navigate to the end of self-trust and the end of self-effort. And these things were meant to bring him to the end of those things in his life. And as we look at these things in life, listen, they were meant to bring him to the end. Paul's troubles, number one, write this down, seemed to come from nowhere. That's what he said. It seemed to come from nowhere. He was minding his own business, going about being an apostle. He was living for God. And then here comes trouble. That sound familiar in your life? doing God's work, but he had trouble. And, and, and that's the way this plays out, but it didn't end there. Look at the second thing. Paul's troubles, number two, were excessive. 
He had trouble to an extreme degree. He was facing disaster. He wasn't just facing disaster. He was facing death. You think you got it bad? You ever been flogged for just speaking your mind? Listen, Paul understood this. Number three, his troubles were beyond his strength. And for those of you who are Bible scholars, listen, the New American Standard says it this way, beyond our strength. The New New International Version, the NIV, says it this way, far beyond our ability to endure. The American Standard Version says it this way, beyond our power. It does not require a Bible scholar to see what is being said here. Paul's troubles were bad, and they were more than he could handle. Fourth thing, they caused him to despair life. He wished he were dead. He could hear uh, death's feet creeping up his back porch and sneaking into his house. He felt like he was on death row, that he was sentenced to death. His life was going to end. Listen, this was the end for him. Why would God do that? And why would God let Paul think everything he had attempted failed? You ever felt that way, that everything you attempt just fails and it amounts to nothing? You're in good company with the Apostle Paul. And so why did God allow all that to happen to him? Here's Paul's own words again. Instead of trusting in our own strength, we were forced to trust God totally. Trusting in ourselves, it's the default in our culture. It's applauded in our culture, right? But but. God could not disagree more. In fact, what seems to be the theme through the message of Jesus is we got to become like little children. Not just for salvation, but through and, and, and in salvation. God finds the weak person irresistible. Irresistible. Listen to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. I will look to the one who is humble and contrite. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit. James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes opposes the proud but favors the humble. And Jesus will live his life through us when we give up on our own self-effort and learn to abide in him. Listen, God is not going to give up on you. And there is nothing we could ever do that would cause God to shrug his shoulders and, and, and to walk away from you. He he is going to bring you to the place where you realize you cannot do it on your own. And and he never expected you to do it. Listen, he he only expects you to trust him and allow him to do it in you and through you. Greatest mistruth in, in churches of Christian heritage today is that the path of discipleship and the path of maturity is somehow gonna get us to the destination where you and I can live the Christian life on our own. Not a part of the plan, not a part of the path. That is not the destination, and it has nothing to do with a walk with God. Why? Because God wants us dependent upon him every step of the way. He is God, and by nature of being God himself, he wants us to be dependent upon him. But the only way to freedom is to totally abandon ourselves to God. It is this leap of faith. And I know, listen, I know, I know, I know, that's really, 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 really scary. But when you get to the point of being sick and tired, of being sick and tired, you don't care how scary it is. First job I ever had in a church world. Summer after my freshman year in college, I went and sold books door to door. Learned more about people in that three months than I have in every other job combined. Next summer, 
I got hired on to be a youth intern in a church in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which is the armpit of America. They hired me sometime around this time of the year, but I wasn't to report to duty till June 1st. And so it was a, hey, do your finals, do that kind of thing, go home, see your parents, all that, pack up your stuff, and then come to Arkansas for three months to be this intern in this youth ministry. And somewhere between the hire date and the report to duty date, the youth pastor that I was going to intern under left and went to another city and another state and another church. So the pastor called me a couple of days before I'm to arrive and says, hey, uh, he left. He's not here any longer. I said, oh, okay, we'll try again next year. And, and, and he said, no, 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 no. We want you to come and to run our youth ministry. I was 19. Not a lot of wisdom in that decision for that pastor. But here's the good news. They did not have a youth group. I got there, and on Sunday number one, we had one kid. I talked to my dad that night. He said, how many teenagers do you have there? I said, one. He said, son, I got news for you. That's not a youth group. <laughs> group, by definition, has two, at least. He said, you don't have a youth group. You have a youth he said, do well without youth, right? And, and so the very first Sunday I walk in and we have two adults who are teaching Sunday school to this one youth. So here you got the youth director, the two youth teachers, and one youth. That's amazing ratio in kids' ministry. And, and, and so they taught, and here was the title of their very first lesson that I heard. Evangelism is not urgent. To which I said, what? I said, Explain. And they said, well, Jesus said he was coming back thousands of years ago. He hadn't come back yet. He's kind of tardy. It's not urgent. I said, hey, how about we meet on Saturdays at breakfast and talk about this curriculum before you teach it on Sunday to our one impressionable teenager? They said, no, we're not doing that. I said, then you're both fired. I didn't, know I had to ha I didn't have the authority to do that. First Sunday, fired both of the youth volunteers. I thought on Monday that I would walk in as this 19-year-old kid into staff meeting and the pastor would have brought us lunch to celebrate this courageous kid who was leading the one teenager. Did not go that way. In fact, it was an awful meeting. He said, the Bible says we judge not and will not be judged. I said, yeah. Also says test the fruit. Right? And hold on to what's good and let go. And he said, no, I mean, he just cleaned my clock. And I cried in the meeting. And I went home to this parsonage that they live, let me live in, in the ghetto. I called the police on my neighbors every single night because he was beating the snot out of his wife every single night. This is when I decided that carrying an armed gun, a loaded gun, was a good thing. And, and, and in the process of this whole journey, every single night for three months, I cried myself to sleep. A month into the journey, I called my dad and my mom, and I said, I'm coming home. And my dad said, you don't have a bedroom here anymore. I said, oh. He said, you're staying. And so I would sit on that bed in that old parsonage on that wood floor, and I would look at this old antique dresser that had a mirror on it. And as that mirror sat on it, I would sit there and I would talk to God. And I don't know why I was looking in the mirror to talk to God. That's probably part of my problem. But, but I was sitting there on that bed, looking in that mirror and, and, and crying. And through the tears, I, I'm talking to God. And while I'm talking to God, I, I, I'm saying, God, 
I, I hate this. I hate this. I don't just hate ministry. I hate church. And I don't just hate church. I hate Christians. And I hate this Christianity. And I would sit there looking in the mirror, fighting with God every single night until I was so exhausted I would crash and fall asleep. And every single night I would say, God, I quit. I quit this. And, and God, silent. And I was confident that somewhere along the way, God was going to speak to me. And in my culture and in my understanding and the way I was raised, I was convinced God was going to come along, kind of pick me up by the collar, slap me on the butt, and send me back into the game like you would a seven-year-old on a soccer field. Tough it out. Come on, go. I was confident that's who, I was confident he was going to be a cheerleader, and he was going to encourage me and say, come on, Alex, you can do it. Pray a little longer. Get up a little earlier. Pray a little harder. Memorize more scripture. Memorize Habakkuk. That'll help. And I can just remember thinking that God somehow was going to encourage me in this. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Silence. Day after day after day. And finally, in all of my pleading and all of my crying and all of my weeping and screaming at God, one word. One word answer. And his answer was good. I said, God, you didn't hear me. I said, I quit. And I'm not talking about ministry. I'm not even just talking about church. I'm talking about Christianity. I quit. I'm done with this. I don't like your children. I don't like your followers. I don't want any part of this at all. And he said, good. I said, you don't understand, God. You're not hearing what I'm saying. He said, good. I said, God, I said, I quit. He said, good. I said, I quit. He said, good. And eventually he followed that good with this sentence, and I've never forgotten it. And here was the sentence. Alex, there's only one person who can live the Christian life, and you're not him. His name is Jesus, and he is my son, and he is the only one who ever has been or ever will be capable of living the Christian life, and I'm so glad you quit because now you're going to see what he can do in you and what he can do through you, and, and your quitting is a great thing, and I'm so glad that he showed me that so early in ministry and so early in life, and I want to show you what happens when we come to that realization that it's not about us. It's about Jesus inside of us, and here's what it looks like when we come to the end of all of our self-effort is we look in the mirror and we no longer see us but we see Jesus and we see the finished work of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives and God says good quit and let me do in you and through you what you will never be able to accomplish on your own and watch and see what it looks like when my children abide and just stay close to me, what I do in them and through them. And I don't know where you stand today as it relates to those two dead ends, the dead end of self-trust, where I could put, quit putting my trust in myself and, and the things that I do, and I put my trust in Jesus and the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then... Somewhere along the way, after we trusted Christ, we got to come to a second end, end which is the dead end of self-effort and the dead end of religion. And on all of our campuses, what I would love for you to do is just to bow your head and close your eyes. And I just want to ask you today, if you're a believer, would you pray with me? 
And if you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, listen, I didn't ask if you filled out a card. I didn't ask if you joined a church. I didn't ask if you prayed a prayer. I didn't ask if you walked an aisle. That's not what I asked. What I'm asking, has you placed all of your trust in Jesus Christ? Not in all of your doing and all of your self-effort. Listen, if, if your walk and your journey in Christianity is about what you do and about what you accomplish, you, you are in the religion of self. And God wants you to come to the dead end of that and place your trust in his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. There's no amount of doing that's going to earn you a relationship with God. There's no amount of abstaining that's going to earn you a relationship with God. And so across all of our campuses, you want to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning. Would you just pray with me and say, dear God, I I know I'm a sinner. But today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, would you come into my life as my Lord and my Savior? I'm not trusting in me anymore. I'm not trusting in my works anymore. I'm not trusting in my abstinence anymore. I'm trusting you alone, Jesus, to save me. And I receive the gift of salvation, and I receive the free gift of Jesus today. And I want to thank you for saving me. And with nobody looking on any of the campuses this morning, regardless of what campus you're on, You just prayed that prayer and you meant it with all of your heart. Would you just slip your hand up and let me see it high all across all of our campuses this morning. Just lift it up high. I meant it. I see about a dozen hands at Battle Creek. At Midtown, just lift your hands. Downtown, lift your hands. DuPage, lift your hands. With all of those hands that just went up, I want to say congratulations to you. You can put them down. Congratulations. But there's another dead end that those of us who know Christ and walk with Christ and, and have lived this thing in Christianity for a while, we got to come to, and that's the end of religion. It's the end of self-effort. The temptation that you and I are tempted to believe is that we come to God and we receive salvation by grace. But from that point forward, between salvation and heaven, that now it's about what we do for God. That's as heretical as believing that we come to salvation by something other than grace. We don't just come to salvation by grace. We walk in salvation by grace. And every moment between here and the end is by grace. And that can't be earned. And so today, if you're here and you say, Pastor, I I need to hit that dead end. I need to come to the end of this religion. I need to come to the end of this doing. I need to come to the end of all this self-effort and all this self-trust. This man in the mirror needs to not be me any longer. needs to be Jesus. I need to hit that dead end. Pray for me. Would you just raise your hand on every campus this morning? Say, that's me. Just raise it high so that I can see it. Every campus, just slip it up high. And Father, for all these hands, I pray freedom in their lives. I pray, Father, you would bring them the end of self-effort and the end of self-trust. They would hit that dead end. And Father, some of us hit it harder than others, but I pray you would allow them to hit that dead end, that they would trust only in Jesus and only in the finished work of Christ, that we would quit trying to put our things and our tokens up on that cross with Jesus, but we would trust him to be sufficient, a sufficient offering for all of our sin and for entrance into the throne of grace.
Help us receive that and to walk in the grace of God. Set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. And together we all say, amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord today for grace?